Thank you. Hey, good morning. I want to invite you to pause with me for a moment. If it helps you to, when you talk to God, to close your eyes, you can do so. It helps me to focus. Father, we have uh, sung to you. We have sung with you and about you. We're glad you to speak to us through words, good words that we have shared with one another. As we turn towards your word, we welcome you still. I welcome you, Jesus, to show me who you are in your word today. To use it as a mirror that I might see myself and I might see what you're asking me to believe or to do or to try today. We welcome you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. What is your typical day like? And I see some of you smiling because you're thinking, I don't know what that phrase means. You've never had a typical day. I know for me, I spend several hours every week just focused on my calendar. I'm either scheduling appointments, I'm blocking out time, I'm making sure my to-do list becomes my today list. But if you're like me, your day never really seems to go as planned. There are unexpected moments, there are constant obstacles, there are interruptions. Last week I loved how Jonathan introduced us to Jesus the Interrupter. Do you remember when he, he said that he was kind of doing an imitation of Jesus or if Jesus would say this, that, that Jesus would say, stop doing your thing and come and do my thing. Which if you know anything about the Enneagram and the number seven, which is Jonathan, that sounds a lot like a Jesus-Jonathan hybrid type thing to say. Stop doing your thing and come and do my thing. But it makes sense for Jesus to be able to tell people that, right? Stop your fishing and come follow me. He gets to do that because he has an agenda. And his agenda is, as we saw last week, is that the kingdom is always looking for a people. But what about the things that knock Jesus off his agenda? What happens when Jesus becomes the interrupted? Why does he allow them? He's gonna, he gets interrupted, and of course he has the power. He could say, no, I'm not going to be distracted. I am staying on course because the kingdom is looking for a people. And how do the allowed interruptions of Jesus show us who he is and what he wants to do in our lives? Well, today we're going to follow Jesus in a typical 24-hour period. Mark is going to show us today Jesus interrupted. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark in the very first chapter, verse 21. Um, the translation I'm going to be using today is found in our study guide. I hope you grabbed one of these. Feel free to mark it up as you want. We're going to be on page 83 here. Let's dive in and follow a typical day of Jesus Christ. Mark begins in verse 21. So they traveled to Capernaum. And as soon as it was the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Jesus began to teach. What was he teaching? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. 
But in light of what we heard Jesus say last week, it was probably some version of this. The kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent and trust the good news. But why doesn't Mark tell us? This would be a great moment for Mark to include a long stretch of what Jesus taught, but he leaves it out. Why? I want to remind you that with Mark's gospel, it is not, he's not writing a historical account, even though it is true. He is delivering an announcement. The kingdom of God is at hand. This man is the Messiah. And the hope is by the end of your gospel that you will agree with that, that you will respond to that. And that's why in Mark's gospel, you're going to notice often he doesn't spend a lot of time on what Jesus might have said or done. It's more detail is given to how did people respond to him? What did they do when he taught? What did they they do when when he healed? And so he's going to leave out things that we think are important, like, like, like we saw a couple weeks ago, with the, and Jesus went out to the wilderness, and he was tempted, and then that was it, and he just moved on, because Mark is more interested in how people responded. So we don't know exactly what he taught this day, but we do know how people responded to it, the next verse, and he was, they were stunned by his teaching. Why? Specifically this reason, he was teaching them like someone with authority and not like the scholars. They were stunned. His teaching was different than those of the scholars. I want you to remind you of something. During this time, only about 10% of people could read or write, and they could not read what God said for themselves. They could not read, unroll the scrolls that were in the temple and read them themselves. It looked like gibberish to them. So they had to trust religious scholars not only to teach them and read to them, this is what the scripture says, but then teach to them and tell them, and this is what it means. So you had a dual power being held by the scholars. Here's what it says, and oh, by the way, here's what it means for you. This is important. The scholars were not just teaching the truth, they were interpreting it for people. Can you imagine the potential for abuse? Imagine if I was the only one in the world that had a Bible, and I was up here and I was like, well, let me just tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that you're all supposed to bring some fried chicken over to my house tonight. And you're like, where does it say that? I'm like, oh, no, just, just, it says it right here. And you, you couldn't argue, right? So guess what you're doing tonight? Fried chicken at my house. That's a lot of power to hold. So when these scholars would speak, though, it, they had an authority, but it was an authority that was derived. It was derived from the fact that they alone had the words, they alone could read the words, and they alone could decide what they meant. But people were noticing that Jesus had a different kind of authority, different than the scholars. Tim Keller points out that the word authority here literally means out of the original stuff. Jesus taught not with derived authority, but something new, original authority. It's as if when he taught the scriptures, it was like we were hearing the author himself say the words. I like how in our study guide during one of the meditations they quoted from St. Jerome, and I think he captured this very well. Because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. I think we have a slide for this, do we? I want to show it up there. Okay. Because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes, he did not speak as a master but as Lord. He did not speak as if referring to a higher authority but spoke about himself. Finally, The one who had spoken to the prophets was speaking right here. I that spoke, behold, I am here. 
One of the things I would love to do in the afterlife, I would love to be able to go back in time or be able to go watch and just be present for some of these things that happened in the scriptures. And I would love to just be present for the teaching of Jesus. I would love to hear his voice. I would love to hear for myself. Why was his teaching, what did it sound like? What did it sound like to realize I'm hearing a voice that spoke to the prophets? I don't know. I think it would be amazing. I would be stunned. Now, this is a pretty normal start to Jesus' day. He spends it teaching. Let's see what happens next. Suddenly, there was a man with an unclean spirit in their synagogue, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus the Nazarene? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In the wilderness, the accuser could not stop the messenger, so now he's trying to stop the message. I was at a church uh, years ago that supported some church planters in Italy. And they were telling us a story about how uh, they were having worship services in their home. That's where they met. And there are these two women who, who hated them. They, they hated the church. They hated Christ. They hated all that was happening. And so they would stand outside during the worship services, and they would just keep ringing the doorbell and shouting and screaming. The whole time, they were trying to disrupt this unclean spirit disrupts. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Hey, question, is this demon's confession true? How many of you raise a hand would say, this guy is speaking truth, this demon is speaking truth? That's interesting. I thought demons would, like, lie, but that sounds like he's speaking truth. Why doesn't Jesus say, you're right, you got it? One thought is, maybe he doesn't want that endorsement. <laughs> you know, if you're running for city council and the local clan comes to you and says, hey, we would love to endorse you, you go, hey, I'm good, thank you, thank you. Or more likely, it's this, that this unclean spirit is not here to confess Christ, but to be an obstacle to him, to disrupt. Jesus reprimanded him, be silent and come out of him, and the unclean spirit after convulsing him and uttering a loud cry came out of him and everyone was so astonished they asked each other what is this a new teaching with authority and he even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him how do unclean spirits respond to jesus they come out of him there's a historian that lived during this time named Josephus, and in his kind of writing about the history, he had an eyewitness account of someone that was trying to cast out, perform an exorcism, so to speak, cast out some demon out of someone. And he described the process of the day was they would take a ring of herbs, and they would put them under the nose of the person that was possessed, and the hope is that the herbs would force a sneeze, and the demon would leave through the nostrils, which is why today when someone sneezes, we say... God bless you. No, we don't say gahoon sight. How do you say that? Why did I try that? I don't even know what that word is. But what's stunning about Jesus is he has no herbs. He has no incantations. He doesn't dance. He doesn't perform a ritual. He just speaks. And the spirits stream out. This is astonishing. This is new. And this kind of teaching with authority and this kind of power begins to get out. Verse 28, so reports of him spread quickly everywhere in the whole surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately after leading, leaving the synagogue, he went to the home of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, so they tell him about her at once. And going to her and taking her hand, he raised her up, and the fever left her, and she began what? Isn't it just like a mom to be on the edge of death's door and then to notice there are boys in the house? I'll get up and get something for you guys to eat. But that evening when the sun set, they began bringing him all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town was gathered at the door. So he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He drove out many demons, but he would not allow the demons to speak because they knew he was the anointed one. We'll get to that in a minute. I love how uh, the, the, the Bible is this amazing mix of divinity and humanity mixed together, just like Jesus was, right? He was an amazing mix of divinity and humanity. And we get to see some of the humanity in our Gospels, that, that God allows Mark to put his own kind of words here. He had, Mark is kind of an exaggerator at times. The whole town was there. And so the whole town was there. Everybody was there. And yet we still haven't really heard Jesus teach, except last week Jonathan shared like one sentence. Why are the crowds coming? Maybe the crowds aren't coming to hear Jesus, but to be healed by him. Jesus told us that he came to bring this eternal reign of God, but people seem more interested in temporary relief. Oh, got this problem, got this sickness, got this. Maybe people are missing who he is. Which, by the way, is the whole point of the book of Mark. What is Jesus going to do here? Let's look at verse 35 through 38. I think this is a helpful key that kind of unlocks something for us. Rising early while it was still very much night, he went out to the country and began to pray there. But Simon and those with him tracked him down and found him. And they tell him, everyone's looking for you. But he says to him, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to nearby villages so I can preach there too. And then look what he says. For this is why I went out. This is why I've been sent. This is why I'm here. So Jesus goes away to pray. After prayer, interrupted, he comes out and says, nope, we're going in a new direction. I want to remind us of something. While Jesus was a man with authority, he was also a man under authority. The authority of his father. In another gospel, another announcement book written by a guy named John, he tells us in chapters 5 and 14 that Jesus says this, I only do what I see the Father doing. And he also says, even though my words have authority, I am under the authority of God. So I want you to lean into this for a moment. Jesus spent the day healing, but after getting alone with God, he decides it's time to move on for this is why I went out. It's almost like he's saying, I, I, I didn't come just to spend the day healing people. I didn't come to make a difference. I came to bring a kingdom. Doing something bigger than healing hurts. I'm going to heal hearts. And just like us, Christ's day was filled with interruptions. And to stay on track, to know when to stop and be a part of that interruption, to know when it is time to go and move on, for that kind of direction in our life on a daily basis, we also need to get direction from our Father. We need to listen to his voice. We need to be sensitive and present in the moments. Well, if Jesus came to do something more than just healing, then why did he heal anyone at all? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, his healing was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Why do we build bunk beds in Colorado Springs for foster kids? 
We do that because we believe that one day in the kingdom, no kid will sleep on the floor. So that's a way for us to say we believe in the coming kingdom, and we're going to live that out in a practical way. Jesus healed people because one day in the kingdom, no one will suffer the ravages of sickness. Healings are a taste of the kingdom. Another thought is that Jesus healed to just advance the story that was happening. It's really interesting. Uh, a lot of times we talk about miracles and we look at those as, well, those are kind of proof that God is God. Is God. Like if God would do this miracle, that would prove who he is. But if you were a Jewish person during this day, that's not how you saw miracles. You did not need miracles to prove God's existence. You had, had faith that there was a God. In fact, to, to say I need a miracle to, to demonstrate faith almost is, is showing a weak faith. And they had strong faith. They said, no, we believe God is God. We don't need a miracle to see that. And actually, when you look through the Bible, faith that is built on miracles doesn't always seem to last that long. Just read the Old Testament, and you'll see hundreds of examples God does something amazing, and it's like days later, people are like grumbling again, and they're, they're sinning again, and they're, they're leaving him again. So Jesus heals to advance the story, to, to allow the mission to go forward that he's doing. Why did God split the Red Sea? Because the Israelites needed to cross it to advance the story. Why does God bring manna from heaven? Because people were hungry, and they needed to eat. Why does Jesus heal a leper? Because he was sick. Jesus is bringing a kingdom, and his miracles are moving us forward in the story towards that. And by the way, this is just an opinion here, but I think this could be one reason why these disciples were so important to Jesus. Everyone else was following Jesus, it seemed, for what he could do for them. He will feed me. He will heal me. He will teach me new things. But the disciples followed Jesus before his miracles started. These were true friends and followers. Jesus gets away, he prays, he's redirected by God. No, this is what you were sent for. It's time to move on. You're not just opening a hospital here. Let's go. Verse 39, so he went, preaching in their synagogues in the whole of Galilee and driving out demons. Well, a man with a skin disease comes to him, imploring him, Sir, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. A disease like this in that day meant that you were unclean. You were outside the community. You were cut off from life. No one would have relationships with you. No one would touch you. You could not go to worship. You could not serve God in the temple. We look back and go, wow, that ancient world was rough. Last month marked 22 years since the death of Princess Diana. She was a style icon. She was a loving mother, an unconventional royal. She was a champion of charitable causes. One of her finest moments, I believe, took place on April 19, 1987. She arrived at London Middlesex Hospital to open the very first unit that was dedicated to treating people with HIV and AIDS. Now, her job that day was to walk around, take some photos, wave, smile, be present, maybe cut a ribbon, right? But she did something that shocked the entire world. She reached out and shook the hand of an AIDS patient without wearing any gloves. Now, some of you look at this picture and you go, there's nothing that big about that. But for those of us who kind of lived through the 80s, we remembered things were different back then a few decades ago. People were terrified of touching. The sick were shunned. 
we were, stories are going around. You can't go to the dentist because if the dentist has AIDS, he, he's going to give it to you by putting his hands in your mouth. Well, you can't touch anybody. And, and, and there's the, it, there was actually a, an L.A. Times poll where 50% of people said, we think everyone with AIDS ought to be quarantined. That's not 2,000 years ago. But that's what it meant to be unclean. That's what it meant to be unclean for this person with a skin disease. And I love this line. Mark didn't have to put this in here, but he did. Filled with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and says to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, the skin disease left him, and he was cleansed. And warning him sternly, he sent him off at once. Now, if someone was unclean and you touched them, you became what? Right. No one would touch you. Now I'm unclean. Now i got to go get washed. But Jesus does not become unclean by touching the man. No one says, oh, now Jesus is unclean. The man touched by Jesus becomes clean. This is authority. And then he says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, we've seen this a couple times. Let's address it. Again, Jesus is muzzling his witnesses. Don't tell anybody who I am. If you're coming to announce your mission on this planet, the strategy of please don't tell anybody seems counterproductive. Cast out demons can't talk. Newly healed lepers can't speak. Why? One of our elders at Pulpit Rock trains missionaries in how to be safe in different environments. And he was telling me this story about how many of missionaries today operate in dangerous settings. Their identity, their mission, if it went public, uh, would compromise them and put them in danger of exile imprisonment, or even worse. They have to be so careful. And then a well-meaning church back home wants to put their picture and their name and their location on their website and say, everybody pray for this missionary operating here. And they're like, no, don't. Well, don't you want to pray for them? No, pray for an unknown. Like, don't get it out there. Our guidebook in one of the study sections brings up a new term to us, the messianic secret. This is something that Mark focuses on a lot, and, and there's more to that, but let me just explain this. Uh, everyone knew what a Messiah was. If you walked around during that day and you said, hey, do you know the Messiah? Oh, yes, that's the one. He is going to show up. He is going to right all the wrongs. He is going to do, uh, do away with the government. He is going to establish a kingdom. He's going to overthrow the Romans. Everyone knows what a Messiah is going to do. By the way, this is why people are always confused when Jesus didn't do these things. Now, if you are at the beginning of your ministry and word gets out that there's this rabbi who's positioning himself as the Messiah, can you see a problem? In fact, we know it's a problem because only a few years later, this is going to rise to the level of crucifixion. Exactly. But he wasn't ready for the crucifixion yet. He says, I'm trying to make my case without going public. People are figuring it out one at a time. But then he does say something weird. He says, I want you to go to the priest and offer what Moses commanded and then do it as a testimony to them. Why would he send him to go and tell the priest? Well, first of all, he's got to offer a sacrifice. He's, gotta, he's also got to kind of get an all clear from the priest. The priest would have been the one to say, this guy no longer has the skin disease. Here's a piece of paper he can carry around saying I'm skin disease free and be okay. But look what Jesus said. I want you to go to the priest, and I want, you to show, I want you to show him what's happened as a testimony to them. Jesus doesn't want the civil authorities to catch on yet, but he is serving notice to the religious leaders. God is doing something new. 
What he's saying through this man is this. Hey, go back and check those scriptures that you read with such authority. What do they say is going to happen one day? Who do they say is going to show up? And then who does this healed leper say that I am? Don't go tell anybody. Verse 45. But he went out and began to proclaim and spread the word. It's good to me to know that even people disobey Jesus after he's directly given them some direction. As a father, that's comforting to me. Uh, the word was spread so much, Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. The crowds, he had to remain out in the country, and now people were coming to him from everywhere. As Michael Card writes, the best of Jesus' call to call people to the good news is being eclipsed by the good of his ability to heal. This healing thing is actually hindering what he's trying to do. We're going to see how that plays out in the weeks to come, but I, I, I want to just kind of pause here, begin to ask this question. What do we take away from this day in the life of Jesus? I hope you're seeing again in Mark that it doesn't seem to matter how many people show up. It seems to matter how they respond. The demons respond to his authority. Sicknesses respond to his voice. The region responds to his reputation. And sometimes people like this leper don't respond very well to his commands. So what we're seeing is a Jesus who is acting and expecting us to respond. And if Jesus is asking and expecting us to respond, it means he's not waiting for us to make the first move. He's not waiting for us to go and find him. He's not even asking us to do what every other religion asks of its followers. I believe that you can basically take every religion in history. I, I may be wrong on this, but I think you could basically take every religion in history and they fall in one of two categories. Either they are legalistic or they are fatalistic. Either God is hard to reach, and so we've got to come up with rules and rituals and ladders, and we have to do all these steps of obedience to get to him. That's legalistic. This is why Orthodox Judaism has 613 commands you're supposed to obey. This is why Islam has five pillars that you must follow. This is why in Buddhism, the ultimate goal is to get to nirvana, and you can only get there by working so hard. On the other side, we have religions that are a little bit more fatalistic. This is where God just doesn't care. You don't really have any control over your destiny. You know, you're just an actor on a stage, and your lines have been written, and the beginning and the ending is there, and it doesn't really matter what you do. Life is kind of random, and it's outside of your control, and you just have to be at peace with that. And so it seems every religious system comes down to either you have to be good enough to please God or you have to hope that God has decided in your favor unless Jesus flips it. He's not waiting for us to make the first move. He's not leaving us to the fates. He has come to us first. Jesus has come to our shore and called us out just as we are. All my life I've heard people say, we ought to believe in Christ. We ought to believe in Christ. We ought to believe in Christ. But I've come to understand that Christ also believes in us. He comes to us where we are in our day-to-day -day life, and he says, follow me. He has faith that when he says that, you can respond to that him. He has faith that when he says that, you can follow him. He has faith that you can be like him. Isn't that what a disciple is? And so what Jesus is doing here that's amazing for us, it's not if we become good enough, and it's not if the stars have aligned correctly. It is Jesus Christ saying, I believe in you. Come follow me. And he says this with an authority that is not derived, but a, an authority that explains the story of your life. We should all be astounded and astonished.
So I'll close with this. I began by asking, how, does the, how do these allowed interruptions, these interruptions that Jesus seems to allow, how do they show us who he is and who he wants to be in our lives? I think the answer, whether Jesus is interrupting or he's allowing himself to be interrupted, is the same thing we saw last week, because the kingdom is looking for a people. And Mark shows us a Jesus who is powerful enough to use everything and anything to accomplish why he went out. It doesn't matter if he is doing the interrupting or if he is allowing someone to interrupt. His kingdom goes forward. And when you follow this man, obstacles become opportunities and interruptions become avenues. When Princess Diana touched that HIV patient, something shifted in our world. A nurse who witnessed this visit said her touch educated people. I mean, if a royal could, was allowed to go in and shake a patient's hands, maybe somebody at the bus stop or the supermarket could do the same. If I may, people of Pulpit Rock, if our royal, Jesus Christ, could touch the unclean and welcome the interruption, then somebody like us at a bus stop or a supermarket in an unexpected moment could do the same. So let me ask you two things as we pray. First, I want to ask you to join us for CityServe on October 5th. You can sign up outside. This is a way for us to step into, to kind of, it's an interruption to our week or our day. It's, a, it's an interruption in some sense to people. But it's with the tangible love of Christ. We believe in the promise of Isaiah 58 that as the people of God seek the good of the place around them, that we will be called repairers of broken walls and restorers of streets with dwellings. Isaiah says, you'll be called those things. That means other people are saying that about us. Will you join us on this day as we send out and we go to interrupt our city together? As of today, we have over 3,000 people in churches signed up. About 1,000 slots are left. Those are going to go over the next two weeks. What I'm really excited about is 30 of those uh, uh, project sites are schools, local schools. It's a great beginning of a partnership between the faith community and the school. But let me ask you a second question. How are you responding to the interrupter? What is he saying to you this morning? I'm going to give you a moment as I pray to begin to consider that question. Jesus, we like you when we get to interrupt you, when we get to bring to you what we want on our timetable and our schedule. But Jesus, we acknowledge you have the authority and the right to interrupt us. You are so gracious that you allow interruption, and you're so gracious that you interrupt us for our own good. And so we invite you to speak to us. How are we responding to you this morning?